Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Election Day in Canada. We take a look at it from all angles. And then we'll head down to the United States and sample the hot water Donald Trump finds himself in, including wanting to host a G7 at his country club. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, today is Election Day. People heading to the polls to see who will run the next government. To talk more about all of this, Daryl Berker is with us from Ipsos and on the line now. Daryl, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Have things changed much over the weekend? Have have things changed much since where we were last week? It's pretty much been called a dead heat ever since this whole thing started. It really has. The only thing that we've seen change is we've seen the NDP come up a bit. But, you know, in spite of all the accolades Mr. Uh, Mr. Singh gets, uh, we never had him lower than about 14 or 15. And most of the polling has him around 18 or 19. So it hasn't been a huge increase for the NDP. But they're certainly doing better than they were at the start of the campaign. The really big story is the movement of the Bloc Québécois in the province of Quebec, which uh, until the start of this campaign, most people have written off for uh, I guess for history's sake, you know, there was something that was uh, probably more for last century than this century, and they are definitely back and are challenging the uh, the Liberal Party to win the most seats in the province of Quebec. Uh, many have talked about the the resurgence of the NDP and how at the beginning of this campaign, um, many were talking about the Greens as much as the NDP. As you said, post-debate and such, things have changed uh, for the NDP, and we are, see the, uh, are seeing more attention paid to them. That being said, with the loss that they're predicted to get in Quebec and the gain that uh, the Bloc is expected to get, is this going to be a wash for the NDP? Yeah, it's going to be a, probably a wash and probably less than a wash. I mean, it's uh, it's if they lose 15 seats in the province of Quebec, if they hold on to a couple, compared to what Jack Layton did that back in 2011, uh, it, it has to be a huge disappointment. That was their big breakthrough, and it will have all been gone uh, as a result of this election campaign. So they go back to the kind of party that they were previously under Ed Broadbent and, and other leaders uh, during the you know the, the seminal years of the NDP back in the 1980s, where there there were sort of 45, 50 seats, probably somewhere between 30 and and 45 seats in this election campaign, which is not um, not a, a strong political force in Canada. If we hadn't seen the blocks rise in Quebec over the last few weeks, what would that have meant for the meant for the NDP? Well, then we were in a, a really interesting situation in which those those voters who were never um, really as characterized, particularly by English-Canadian media. Uh, the, the way that we look at uh, the NDP usually is the liberals in a hurry, as Louis Saint Laurent said back in the, in the 1950s, a uh, former prime minister. But though these NDP voters in the province of Quebec weren't that. They were, they were basically parked Bloc Québécois voters who did, had no appeal. Uh, the Bloc option had no appeal for them, so they voted for the NDP because they liked Jack Layton. And after that, they, uh, they liked uh, Thomas Mulcair, who was a native son. Uh, but uh, in terms of values, they were not liberals in a hurry. They're nativists and nationalists in the province of Quebec. So for them, what was become, becoming more appealing was actually the Conservative Party. So the party that failed to capture them was actually not the NDP. It was the Conservatives, uh, who would probably be more in line with uh, what, they, what uh, the values of those voters are. And, uh, and Mr. Scheer had put a lot of stake in it. So he's going to fail in, in terms of his ability to bring those those voters over to his party as well. So it's not just a, a problem with the NDP, it's also a problem with the Conservatives. Uh, the Bloc turning out to be an, another option for Quebec, or does this talk and fuel fires of separation? I've noticed that both uh, the top leaders have, have made uh, have made accusations that the, the Bloc is there to separate at the end of, at the end of everything. Um, is that even been talked about, or is that just the rumor and obviously the whole mandate of the party in the end? Well, what's happened in, in the province of Quebec is that the sovereignty option, the idea that the way for Quebec to get what it needed in order to maintain its culture and maintain uh, uh, its institutions, um, that, that's really died off. Uh, and what we're seeing is, a, is a, a national project for the Bloc Québécois and for the Quebec, the, the people who are uh, supportive of that option, um, really more within Canada, but establishing more powers and making it a stronger political entity uh, as a province within Canada. 
But um, the, transforming the relationship between the federal government and the provincial government in the province of Quebec is really what their mission seems to be these days. At least that's what they say. Uh, we'll only be able to tell with deeds. So over time, well, I guess we'll figure it out. But uh, that's at least what they're stating right now. What are the chances that by tomorrow, this time tomorrow, we have something completely different than what we thought we had at the polls? Well, there's always that chance. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, would be ridiculous for anybody who does what I do, knowing what, knowing what I know about polling failures in the past. And again, but, I'm, I'm not associating this with a polling failure. It's just I think a lot of people may poll one way and vote the other once they get in the booth. Well, it's not that they will vote. Uh, about 10% of us won't make up our mind until today. So we know that based on polling. Right. So there's, the, there's that factor that, uh, that we have to take into account. And probably, you know, on surveys, uh, it's, it's hard to, you know, those people are among the undecided, but they're, uh, they're really hard to capture and to understand what, uh, what, what they're going to do. Uh, if there is something that is a result that's different, it could be a late shift. A lot of people who go into the voting booth at the last minute decide that they're going to go one way or the other. The other thing that can happen is that the, par- the differential of turnout between the parties could be really strong. So, for example, the conservatives could do a really good job getting their vote out and the liberals could do a really good job, but the NDP could do a really bad job. So uh, they don't perform as well as the, the, the polls are predicting. So when we get surprises, they tend to be as a result of those things. Uh, does the trending here tell you anything? The fact that it has been neck and neck for so long, although I, I do, I've read somewhere today that the uh, Conservatives had a slight lead, but that's all within the margin of error. Yeah, all the, all the major pollsters are kind of around the same number right now. No, it's been an oscillating, oscillating minor changes that are probably more of a reflection of, uh, of differences between the polls and the timing of the polls as opposed to genuine momentum for one party or the other. Uh, we could take a snapshot of what the first day was and take a snapshot of today's polls, and they're very similar, save the difference with the NDP rising and the uh, Bloc Québécois coming up. What about voter turnout? Well, in, in uh, 2011, voter turnout was about 60%. So 60% of the people who were eligible to vote voted in that election, and Stephen Harper won a majority. In 2015, 68% of the population who was eligible to vote showed up. And that's what won Justin Trudeau, his majority. This time around, our expectation is that it will be a number somewhat in between, which probably gives a little bit of an advantage to the Conservatives. That is a pretty healthy number, is it not, or is it? Well, you know, compared to other countries, I mean, in terms of Canadian history, it's certainly down from what it's, it, was, it was in the in the 70s and 80s. Right. Um, but, but I mean, uh, uh, in the last few years, uh, I mean, we usually talk about voter apathy, but no? Uh, well, yeah, well, it is down overall, but, you know, that's 40% of the people uh, who are you going to walk by on the street today who are eligible to vote who decided not to participate. Uh, and advanced polls, we've been over this. I think that has more to do with convenience than it does interest in the election, or does it? Well, it's, it's two things. I think people, uh, there's a rising awareness of the ability to be able to advance in a vote in an advanced poll, and the government's also made it more convenient to do so. The second thing is that uh, the parties are are doing a much better job of organizing their advanced their advanced vote. So we've seen advanced balloting increase steadily from about 2006 to 2015, but the only election that we saw actually overall increase in turnout in was 2015. So 2008, for example, uh, advanced turnout went up, but the actual turnout was only uh, just below 60%. So it doesn't they don't always correlate. Many said that there wasn't a significant main issue here to grab people's attention. Would you agree with that? What were well, Again, run down what the top three or four or five issues were for people. Well, Canadians told us that there, there were really important issues in the election campaign. So they told us number one was health care. We've heard precious little about health care. They told us number two was climate change. We've heard a lot about climate change. But both parties have been dropping, actually all parties have been dropping a lot of information, a lot of policy on climate change, and we haven't really seen any response to that other than to increase the level of awareness about climate change. Number three was taxes. There's been a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, tax policy that's been announced by the parties, barely a budge. Uh, number four was the economy. Um, and we've seen barely any movement on that. Um, and, uh, and also mixed in with those two has been the issue of affordability. Uh, all parties have been announcing a lot of things on, on what they're going to do on behalf of Canadians to make uh, our lives more affordable. 
And we really haven't seen any movement on based on that. This election has basically been about leadership. It's where the, all the movements that we've seen happen has been of a res, uh, pretty much a result of the performance of leaders in debates or as a result of particularly uh, before Mr. Trudeau and, 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 uh, and Mr. Scheer, revelations about them that have affected their ability to increase support. Many have said, uh, especially over the weekend, that this has been, in regard to those issues you've just talked about, an election about nothing. If that's the case, how did we get so divisive? Is that because too much of it is spent on character, personality? Well, I I think that there's a certain character, personality, values element to Canadian politics now in which we've become a bit more tribal. So uh, in the old days, uh, when, for example, we're considering a change in government here, an easy handover if somebody wins... Say, for example, that the Conservatives are able to win five or six more seats. You know, the con- suggestion is that, uh, you know, we should just move on. At least that's what the, uh, the uh, leader of the opposition has suggested, that he should be given the chance to uh, form the government. In the old days, the, the way that people would talk about this would be, well, you know, I think the other party is wrong. You know, I don't, I don't agree with them. But they wouldn't say the other party is evil. Yeah. Now, now we're having people say that which is very, very different and makes some of these easier conventions in terms of how our politics, the, 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 the process of you know, easy government change and, 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 and easy conventions in terms of building relationships to make parliament work, it, it makes them harder because the value judgments are stronger. Yeah. And we've seen that come through in the election campaign in, in, a, in a very large degree this time. Many times, uh, lots of chatter, th- this campaign, especially in the latter part of it, in regard to a minority government. Uh, a lot of minority governments don't last very long because of the divisiveness. Uh, Harper had one, I guess, which lasted uh, recently, um, I guess, a reasonable amount of time. Uh, with the parties being so divided and some saying that they won't work with others, uh, a minority government destined to fail? Well, they always fail. I mean, Mr. Mr. Good Harper's, Mr. Harper's uh, administration uh, in between 2011, or actually between 2008 and 2011, was a bit of an exception. It was able to govern for three years, and he actually had a hard time getting defeated, even though he wanted to be defeated at several points. Uh, and it was because of the politics between the two opposition parties. But uh, minority governments, you know, going back and for a long time in Canadian history, I mean, they usually average about 18 months. And, and so what's going to happen tomorrow uh, is based on who wins the most seats. So if the Liberal Party wins by you know, four or five more seats than the Conservative Party, my expectation is that the Prime Minister will continue to try and govern. All he has to do is he has to take a throne speech to the House of Commons and seek uh, the confidence of the House of Commons. And the ability to do that under that type of scenario was probably pretty strong. If, however, uh, the government loses by a dozen seats and the leader of the opposition wins popular, the popular vote by three or four points, it gets a lot harder to do that. That's when we get into some interesting scenarios. And the convention would probably be that Mr. Scheer should be given the opportunity to do that, uh, to, to form some sort of government. So whoever gets to put together a, a speech from the throne that's access, acceptable to the House of Commons will get to govern and only has to face the House in terms of a confidence vote one time each year after that on the basis of a speech, from, uh, on the basis of delivering a budget. There could be other opportunities to, you know, deliver, um, to deliver non-confidence votes or whatever, but the big one that the government absolutely has to pass the test on is the budget. So whoever gets to present a speech from the throne and gets the confidence of the House, um, they will probably govern for around 18 months, I would think. Uh, not a lot on policy this election, as you said, one more of the personalities of the character uh, involved. Um, at the end of the day, if we look back at the last year, we should be looking at another liberal major- uh, majority if it wasn't for the gaffes of the leader, would we not? Yeah, I mean, and, and you saw this in the Conservative Party uh, convention. You also saw this in the NDP Party convention where uh, you know, the, the most credible candidates stood away because they, they honestly thought that Justin Trudeau would be a shoe. In I have said that, but I've had no one else that would admit that. But honestly, the Peter McKay's, the Ron Ambrose's, yeah. the Lisa Raitt's, they all did not run this time or back down because they thought he would just be guaranteed a second mandate. No? Exactly correct. And, and it was the same thing that happened when Stephen Harper 
when the leadership of the uh, of the the, the, uh, the at the time the, the the new conservative party or whatever it became at the time it was the alliance where a lot of people stayed away because they assumed Paul Martin would get elected and what this shows though is that events can happen things do happen and the liberal government finds itself in this position not as a result of anything that the opposition parties have done to them but many things that have happened mm. to them themselves things that they've engineered and as a result of you know whether it was the blackface scandal mostly actually the biggest impact was the snc lavalin scandal uh, which basically started the slide that the government now finds itself in i mean these were things that they did to themselves Daryl Bricker has been with us from Ipsos, Election Day in Canada. Make sure you get out and exercise your right. Daryl, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, did the leaders get across their messages uh, their uh, and the mantra of their campaign? Many have said that this was really a, a a campaign more of character, of personality, than it was of issues. To talk more about all of this, Meyer Siematiki is with us, Professor Emeritus, Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Ryerson University, and is with us now. Meyer, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Very happy to be with you, Scott. As this winds down and we all head to the polls, what are your thoughts? What's your overview as you've seen this campaign unfold? Boy, it's been a pretty dreary and and uh, uh, difficult exercise. Uh, you know, what should have been a, a very high-minded uh, discussion of, of issues and challenges and opportunities facing the country uh, instead uh, often seemed to degenerate into name-calling, into uh, allegations that might have had more untruth than truth behind them, that uh, one leader was leveling at another. Uh, and then we had the uh, pratfalls and foibles of uh, sort of the two lead, uh, you know, who, who we assumed and uh, would be the two lead candidates in the race, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, some of his past photographic uh, uh, activities and uh, uh, Mr. Scheer and uh, some revelations about uh, additional citizenships he had and aspects of his CV and his past career track that may not have been totally uh, as, as he depicted them. So it, it sort of degenerated uh, away from what should have been a serious discussion of the path forward for this country. And instead, kind of around the uh, uh, it almost had elements of like a high school pres- uh, uh, high school class president mm. election of, of like like you know the sort of foibles and pratfalls of, of uh, the individual leader so it, it was it did not show our political leadership at, at their best is that the reason for the divisiveness no real issues more of explaining one's uh past actions, as you said, it became more of personality as we question character? Well, that's a really good, that's a really good question and observation on your part. I mean, uh, uh, I think, in fact, un, uh, you know, underlying what was a pretty sorry uh, 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 election campaign were these incredibly kind of deep and, you know, almost insurmountable kind of regional and social tensions within the country. We have no national political party left in this country. There's no political party that can claim they have a foothold or an imprint right across the country. Each of the, to take the two lead parties, they have strengths in some areas. They're totally shut out of other areas. The divisiveness of the the feelings and antagonisms, BC isn't happy with Alberta. Alberta isn't, and Saskatchewan aren't happy with the rest of the country. Quebec wants people to stay out of their own affairs. Ontario isn't sure what the heck it, 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 uh, which direction it, 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 it will go. And hanging over the specter of this is some pretty dominant provincial figures, Doug Ford and Jason Kenney, who people either rally towards or are prepared to go to the barricades against. So we've got divisive <laughs> personas, we've got divisive regional interests and, and antagonisms, and 
it really is a shame that we had, you know, a 40-day election where no candidate could speak to the question of, so how do you really try to bridge and overcome all these differences that we have? Instead, it turned into mudslinging and name-calling, and uh, it was a pretty sorry spectacle. Uh, there was an interesting uh, question asked during the uh, campaign with the Justin Trudeau camp when he was asked by reporters if he regret what his biggest regret is or something to that effect over the last four years and he said the divisiveness of the country yeah. and uh, unable to, to unable to unite the country and bring it yeah. together yeah what are your thoughts on that well, you know, uh, uh, at one level, you know, my, my first thought is empathic. I mean, the guy tied himself, himself in knots. He bought a pipe. Yeah, like that. You know, I, I'm, yeah. I can't help but think, well, gee whiz, doesn't that start with leadership? Right. Like, you know, he, he tried. You know, he knew that buying uh, Trans Mountain and committing to that as a pipeline would hurt him in B.C., would hurt him in Quebec. And, you know, whether you agree with the policy or not, it was a pretty brave, gutsy, unifying thing to do. And what does he get for it? He'll get no seats in Alberta. He gets denounced by Sheer and Kenny as anti-Alberta. Uh, you know, uh, so I think all of that is just a reflection of, of how, how uh, uh, you know, polarized things are. Now, on the other hand, I think you know, it's interesting that Jagmeet Singh has had a very good election campaign, a really good election campaign. He's come out of this as, you know, if there's a healer in this, mm -hmm. if there's a, you know, a, a, a conciliator and sort of a voice of reason in play here, Jagmeet, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have played that role, and they have, they have. Uh, uh, obviously made great gains in the polls. But again, I'll say it's interesting. I think people have rallied to Jagmeet because of the persona, because of what he has projected in the campaign, that more than whatever his policies may be. So some of this is on the Canadian public. Like, we seem to be, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. We're judging our politicians by their cover. Hmm. Uh, uh, and some of this is on us. Some of this is on the public who kind of want to reduce this to who do you feel warm and fuzzy about? Who really turns you off? Uh, 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 you know, we're not, we're not as, as, as an electorate, you know, I, I don't, we may not be devoting the, the kind of thought and effort to parsing out policies. Uh, and we are maybe maybe we are creating a kind of superficial kind of gloss to elections by making our decisions ex too much on the basis of personality, uh, mm. the sizzle, or the turnoff. Lots of talk of late in the, in the latter part of this campaign about a minority government, um, and, and many promoting the idea of a, of a minority government. Right, right. That being said, when we have such a divisive group of politicians, some saying they <laughs> won't work with the other team, but won't right. work with the other uh, parties, right. how, how do you make a minority work? Well, uh, 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 the thing is, that there are you know there are some willing uh, uh, partners here. If it uh, goes a certain way, but what yeah, if it if, doesn't? If it, go, if it goes a certain way. So I think first and foremost... You know, the, the, the starting point for, the, uh, uh, for thinking about what could happen tomorrow is that uh, uh, Mr. Scheer is just plain wrong uh, about his, his laying out of what he thinks the kind of next steps are after, after uh, 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 an election where there is not a single party that has a majority of seats. He's wrong in suggesting that. The, the party that has more seats than anyone else gets the first shot at governing. R wrong. That's not how our system works. That's not the convention. That's not the tradition of our system. We, of course, have the current example of British Columbia to, uh, as Exhibit A on that. So, I, you know, I think what, uh, if, if Mr. Scheer ends up with the most seats, uh, uh, it, it is up to, Prime Minister, to, to, to current Prime Minister, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau to, to decide, does he think he can have the confidence of the House? That's what it comes down to. The, the, the Prime Minister, our next Prime Minister will be the leader of the party that can generate the confidence of the House. If, mm -hmm. based on election results tonight, uh, tonight, Justin Trudeau doesn't have a majority and even does not have more seats than Mr. Scheer, 
Mr. Trudeau can form the next government if he can have the support of another party or parties with enough seats to put him over the majority threshold and have the confidence of the House. So, uh, you know, the drama isn't going to end tonight. In some ways, maybe it'll just start tonight. Uh, many have uh, many have said that this is going to be a minority government. The that we've seen the polls with the, the top two parties virtually yeah. neck and neck for the entire campaign. What do you think the chances are that uh, of what the polls are saying today is completely different by tonight or tomorrow? I don't think so. I don't think we're going to be in for a big shock of, of, oh, my God, how did all these pollsters get this wrong? And I say that only because, like, you know, a lot of people have commented, of course, that virtually very little has changed in public opinion in, in these polls over, over more than a month. You know, the significant changes, and they are significant. The NDP has gone up, and of course in Quebec the bloc has come up. And, and both the Liberals and the Conservatives have, have dipped from kind of mid-30s to low-30s. So there, ha- there has been some movement, but, but you know, within those very constrained uh, um, you know, margins, margins of difference. So I, I think the pollsters are going to have it right. Now, what, what is unpredictable is how do those percentages shake down in constituencies where there are two, two parties in a tight race or, or three parties in a tight race? Like, that's what's unpredictable. So we don't know how some of these races are going to shake down. In, uh, voter turnout will become a factor. Uh, so there are unpredictable there are unpredictables, but I don't think the overall projection that the pollsters have come up of w- what percentage of the popular vote are they pegging for each party? I think they're going to get that pretty close. Meyer uh, Meyer Simiatiki has been with us, Professor Emeritus, Department of Political Science and Public Administration, Ryerson University. Going to be a fascinating night, Meyer. Thank you for the time. Much yes, appreciated. Yes, And uh, I'm going to take that stroll now to the ballot box myself. All right. Good luck. Okay, thanks, Thank God. you. All right. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, uh, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. So as you look back as a political scientist at this campaign, what are your thoughts as it's coming to an end? Well, uh, I think that uh, probably the the biggest surprise is that uh, well, two two surprises, of course, in Quebec, the uh, the strength of the uh, Bloc Québécois. I think most people didn't uh, didn't see that coming, and I'm I'm sure I, I don't think they still understand what happened there, although I think it mainly centers on the the pipeline going through. Quebec, and uh, I think the people, basically the Bloc Québécois made the case that, you know, oil is dirty, uh, uh, people in Quebec don't don't need dirty energy because they have clean energy from their hydro resources, uh, a bit of an exaggeration, but I think that's the image, and when, when Trudeau bought the uh, pipeline uh, to uh, uh, a num- uh, some time ago, that I think that really tarnished him in you know in in Quebec and it really and the bloc has just jumped right in on that so that that's something we didn't see but they were they were very astute uh, to do to to jump on that issue there and the other thing is the uh, how well uh, the NDP would do they started the campaign they had very little money uh, not even a lot uh, enough to travel around very comfortably around the country and probably still don't but. I think what surprised everybody, uh, well, he had a bunch of surprises about Jugmeet, uh, you know, how well he spoke French, um, how well he dealt with criticisms, and even what, you know, people would think of very unfair criticisms, and how he could I- interact with people on the street and, and deal with all sorts of uh, criticisms and, uh, you know, and, atta- and basically veiled attacks on, on his ethnicity and, uh, and, and the way he would appear with his turban and stuff. Uh, and and he wouldn't get angry. Uh, he basically, you know, said, "I disagree with the disagree with you. That you know, this is what my Canada looks like today. It is different than the way it was." And he didn't play the role of victim. I think that's terribly important. Hmm. He didn't. He's never. And I think I think people who are uh, 
discriminated against, I think, uh, misunderstand how they should play, play it, and they often play the role of victim, and that oftentimes takes away some of their sympathy. You, but there you had Jagme, who basically would listen to somebody, he would politely disagree, you would see he wouldn't get angry, and but he said, I, you know, it's, I have a very different view from you, and he would maintain his composure, and he'd still be viewed as a pleasant person. And he opened himself out where he could go in any kind of crowd and take any kind of questions. And I also was impressed where some people would sneak into scrums, and I think these were pretend reporters, quite frankly, who were trying to bait him, uh, basically from the right, and said, I'm just not going to answer your question. And then he said, we're going on to another question. And he just didn't get angry or upset about it. But he, he, he has this ability to, you know, to be level-headed, look like he's in charge of the situation, that he doesn't get angry, and also he adjusts his speech to who he's talking to. He can be very formal, and he can be very sort of, you know, mm -hmm. what we call streetwise. Yeah, yeah. You know, he listens to the person talking to him, and he speaks at their level. And for him, it is very natural. It's like it's not put on, but he, he does that. And so I think that's, uh, that's also, what, uh, you know, a, a big a surprise for many people. Do you think the Do you think the polls will accurately represent what the voting is by tomorrow? Will we be in the same place, minority, minority, one way or the other? Well, I think in terms of popular vote, the polls in general, when you put them all together, they're probably not going to be too far off. Mm -hmm. The whole problem is, is that how how these how things are done in an individual constituency varies. It's a we're really throwing together all the results from 338 poll uh, constituencies. And in a lot of constituencies, there you oftentimes get down to two two choices. The people there in the constituencies know, and after in about the last week or so, they get down to two choices, and they have to figure out, okay, which one do I want? Which one don't I want? And they center on that, and you get also a lot of strategic voting. And it was amazing to me that for the longest time, the green vote, which was up there higher than it's ever been, mm -hmm. and I. Uh, and I was talking to some, pollster, some pollsters, and they said, well, it's going to go down at the end. It always goes down at the, uh, because of the, you know, and I'm saying, well, you know, this was higher than usual. And even, even towards the end of last week, and I was surprised how high it was. I mean, it wasn't yeah. quite as high as it was early on in double digits. But I think from what I can tell, on, by Sunday, it had dropped, dropped down fairly dramatically. And the typical thing of, the, of Green's, looking at their constituency, say, oh, I just can't allow the conservatives to win in my constituency, so I'll go over to the NDP or the liberals, whoever had the best chance. And that, that green vote suddenly just, mm. you know, dropped, seemed to drop very dramatically uh, at the end of the campaign, like it almost always does. So I, I think the posters who I argued with her probably were correct that, in fact, it would drop down. But even even yesterday, it still was higher than than it was uh, last election, and it will probably wind up being a bit higher than uh, the, than it was the last election. But I still think it probably is going to go down as, as people say. I don't want to waste my vote. I really want to make sure that I, you know, I keep out who I don't want in there, and and uh, I'll, I'll go to my second choice or my even my third choice. What about uh, locally? How do you think things are going to shake down locally tonight? Well, I think uh, pretty much uh, you you're the you will probably have the three. Uh, con uh, NDP constituencies, uh, you know, Hamilton Center, the Mountain, uh, yeah, Hamilton Center and the Mountain for, will will be will be NDP. Yeah, those are our two. I think the we we have a very close race in uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek. Uh, there, I think the the incumbent, uh, the liberal incumbent, is going to be really disadvantaged by the drop in liberal support. The liberals are probably running. Uh, in the province, they've lost about 25% of the vote that they had uh, four years ago. And I think that's going to do in, you know, that's going to do in uh, our, the liberal incumbent there. And the NDP will take that seat back. Uh, it'll be, it'll also, re it'll reduce the margin for Hamilton West, uh, Ancaster, Dundas. But I think uh, Philomena Tassi there will hold on. Uh, David Sweet should probably have no problem in his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his riding out there, out in the out in the countryside, the conservative vote is going to go a bit further than it did the last time compared to the ND, this liberal vote. So that shouldn't be a problem. But but you know, I think keeping our eye on certainly, as I said, the Hamilton East Stony Creek 
may turn out to be closer than I think, but I, I, I do think there'll be an upset there. And the real you know nail biter in some ways is out in uh, Burlington, where we have a cabinet, uh, liberal cabinet minister, the youngest cabinet minister, Katrina Gold, and she's she's in a real tough fight. I think she's going to lose. Uh, although she's, you know, she's a very, she's a very good candidate and has been a pretty a, a good minister. I think uh, it probably surprised a lot of people how 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 well she handled her portfolio. But I, I just think that Burlington just has too many, you know, conservative people and also the the liberal vote is again again they've lost twenty five percent of it down in Burlington and I don't see how she hangs how she hangs on in that. It's, I think it's gonna be very difficult. Henry Jasek has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry as always, thanks so much for the time. Gonna be a fascinating night. And a long night. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Henry. Take care. Okay, very good, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's head south of the border. It seems like uh, last week a particularly bad week for the president, or is that just par for the course? Let's bring in Claire Finkelstein, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and she is with us now. Claire, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to speak with you. Claire, uh, the last week any worse for Donald Trump, or is this just par for the course? It does seem to be getting progressively worse. He's got pressure on him from several different sources. Of course, the biggest one is the issue of his conversation with uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky from Ukraine, and the fact that it looks more and more as though he conspired to engage in a campaign finance violation uh, more and more is coming out about the involvement of Rudy Giuliani, and it looks as though the president may well end up being an uh, unindicted co-conspirator to crimes that Rudy Giuliani has committed. On top of, the, of that, there is more information coming out about his uh, emoluments clause violations, where he has been uh, gaining financially from uh, having uh heads of state and others uh, use his property, stay at his property, having the Air Force gas up at his uh, resort in Scotland. Uh, He's had issues on the tax return front. And then all of this uh, that exposes him to legal jeopardy has really been fueled by the anger against him for leaving the Kurds undefended and deciding to withdraw troops from Syria. And that has turned a lot of Republicans against him. Uh, and in particular, some Republicans who are quite significant in the Senate. A lot of this incredibly politically complicated for some, too much for the average voter. Does something like the G7 issue and, and, and the president wanting to hold the summit at one of his properties, does that bring this down to layman's terms for the average person? This is something they can understand. This somehow just doesn't seem right. Yeah, I I think all of these issues have pieces that the average voter can understand. Um, That one, of course, um, the president uh, decided to reverse course on that and uh, decided that he would uh, back down off that. And they started talking again at maybe holding the G7 at Camp David. When the president backs down off uh, something of that sort, it really shows that the pressure is getting to him and that he has started to notice that it may really be costing him in his base. So I think it was very telling that he backed down off the idea of having the G7 at his property. Um, But there are all sorts of things that show that the pressure is getting to him. Uh, For example, the, the pressure that he's trying to increase on Adam Schiff and on Nancy Pelosi. We know that this president lashes out when he feels um, that he's in a tight corner and that he lashes out at the people putting him in that corner. It seems pretty clear that he is aware that uh, Adam Schiff's investigation and that Nancy Pelosi's uh, now support for impeachment is really putting him in hot water. 
Uh, he had tweeted in regard to the G7 at, at one of his properties, do nothing Democrat, fake news anger for this reversal. Uh, the White House chief of staff said people think it looks lousy. How can anybody, including the president, think that it would have been fine? Yeah, I don't think that the president cares very much about that in general. But I, I doubt that. But he must care about are, he must care about yeah. how people think of him. And clearly, as you mentioned, he changed course. So is this another is this another incident of something he got wrong? Well, it's hard to tell whether or not he actually is afraid of what people think of his um, uh, selfish and and uh, sort of lining his pockets behavior as compared with the benefit that he's getting, the economic benefit that he's getting from doing that. He has not been very responsive to the emoluments complaints in general. This is the first time we've seen anything in that regard get walked back. Uh, He does uh, seem more sensitive on other complaints so he must not think that 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 those issues place him in a very bad light. Hmm. All right, getting back to what happened uh, with the president of Ukraine and the phone call and such, uh, it, it was uh, last week that the chief of staff came basically came out and basically said, "This stuff happens all the time. Get over it," and then attempted to walk it back. How serious was that statement? Uh, we really saw a lot of daylight there between Mick Mulvaney, the chief of staff, and, and the president's spin on this, uh, because uh, Mulvaney, is first, what was so shocking about that is that he seemed to admit uh, that there was a quid pro quo. He just came out and basically said, yeah, there's, there was a quid pro quo, but this sort of thing happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, uh, the White House must have jumped all over him, and he tried to walk it back and deny that he said what, in fact, he very, very clearly said, which was that there was a quid pro quo. Um, it shows that uh, the White House does not have its story clear on this, um, that uh, they're not even really clear um, what kinds of legal jeopardy this puts the president in. Um, but this has been the most serious uh, violation of his presidency, I think, and one to which not only has he admitted, but multiple individuals in his entourage have admitted the fact that there was quite clearly uh, a withholding of military aid for Ukraine while the president was personally trying to get President Zelensky to go along with investigating uh, his, the son of his political rival, Hunter Biden. Um, and that's a very, very clear legal violation and a violation of campaign finance laws, which the president was trying to enlist Zelensky's help in. Uh, those are clear legal violations, and I think that he is only dimly aware of that, and so the uh, story doesn't come out straight. How does Mulvaney let that slip, and and how secure is his job? What's his relation with, relationship with the president like now? Uh, you wonder about that, but you wonder also about um, Giuliani, who has made such remarks as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that the president seems to believe that he can weather uh, these kinds of um, revelations with regard to foreign leaders. So, for example, when he himself suggested that he had asked for assistance from China. Now, why would he say such a thing if he thinks that it's going to make him look bad or put himself in legal jeopardy? Uh, where he has a clear awareness of his legal risk, he does stay quiet. And we have seen that repeatedly with the Stormy Daniels uh, issues, where he really, um, for the most part, hasn't made any response to those accusations. But here he's proceeding with a lot of swagger and um, kind of uh, unwarranted confidence. And he's not really putting it out there to those who are working with him um, to have a clear, consistent story about what happened. Uh, moving to the situation with uh, Turkey and the Kurds and, and pulling troops out, 
Uh, I understand there was a report over the weekend that Kurds were actually throwing potatoes at the military as they left and in, in, in yelling all sorts of obscenities for the, for them abandoning, right. abandoning them. Uh, and then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pens uh, an article in the Washington Post. Um, it, it appears that he says something publicly very different from the president. How long can this go on? So this is a very interesting situation because this is the thing that is costing the president Republican support in the Senate for the first time. We really see Republican senators like Lindsey Graham who are prepared to uh, potentially really walk away from the president or who are signaling that they may be ready to walk away from the president over this move. And it's interesting because this move is arguably within the president's prerogative as commander in chief in a way that none of the other things are, you know, um, the emoluments issues and the campaign finance violations and bribing foreign leaders and all of that and withholding his tax returns when a federal judge has demanded them. Um, All of these things place him at risk, uh, legally speaking, in a way that this military decision does not, but it's this that has really cost him Republican support. And it may lead them to uh, vote in favor of impeachment once it is in the Senate, um, on the floor of the Senate, um, because they feel so strongly about it, even if it's not the subject of the articles of impeachment that are going to come. Why would Mitch McConnell pen this article? What's in this for him? What, what's his reasoning behind it? I think that uh, there may be a couple of reasons. So it's very hard to tell what what makes uh, Mitch McConnell tick. He really started to worry about his image, I think, with the Moscow Mitch um, accusations and, um, uh, you know, the fact that he was being named Moscow Mitch and that people were wearing T-shirts that said Moscow Mitch. Uh, And this really brings up that issue again, because it looks like a Putin playbook um, that uh, Erdogan and Trump are just being complicit with, uh, sort of following the orders of the Kremlin. And it may be that uh, Mitch McConnell is sort of trying to save his reputation, also knowing that uh, his uh, fundamental Republican constituency really cares about these security issues and that this has struck a nerve that some of the issues haven't with his base. Does this divide does this divide that base or is this is this Mitch McConnell trying to get a handle on the president? I think it may divide that base. I mean there are people who may be attracted to Trump because he is irreverent because he's willing to um, thumb his nose at at Democrats because he's willing to do things like um, you know call Democrats horrible names and threaten journalists and so on. Uh, They may be attracted, but part of Mitch McConnell's base has got to be turned off by those things and even more turned off when there are traditional security matters um, that Republicans, at least in the past, had always cared about. It's hard to imagine that young voters care a whole lot about um, about Turkey, about the Kurds. They may not even understand it very well, but some of the older voters are going to understand that and do care about it. And I think McConnell sees that. How much influence does McConnell have over Trump? Considering well, considering McConnell drives question. the party in that respect. I think that's an excellent question. My guess is that he has a fair bit of influence right at the moment. Because when articles of impeachment are voted by the House, what happens to those articles on the floor of the Senate is going to depend first and foremost on how Mitch McConnell treats them, whether or not he uh, manages to keep them, keep a vote uh, off the floor of the Senate by stalling for time, by using any number of techniques that he may use, or whether or not he allows those articles of impeachment to come to the floor and how quickly uh, they come up for a vote. Mitch McConnell has an awful lot of power over all of that, and uh, the president knows it. Uh, Is Mitch McConnell or perhaps other Republicans planning Donald Trump's exit strategy? 
I have, have we got there? I have wondered that a lot. I have wondered that a lot. Um, one problem is that Pence is himself implicated in the Ukraine scandal. Uh, and he allowed himself to be very much involved in it from the start uh, and even traveled to Ukraine to help cement this deal, or so it seems to be the case. Um, and so it may not be easy to just um, allow the president to be impeached and have Pence then um, fill his shoes. Uh, that That's a risky strategy for Republicans at present, if the Ukraine thing is really what, what produces the articles of impeachment. Um, so if that's their exit strategy, they're going to have to probably think a little more carefully uh, about how they handle it. What about uh, the demeanor of Donald Trump? What about his mood of late? Is he more agitated now than he has been in the past? He seems like the fuse is shorter. Yes, he seems like he is uh, really becoming deeply unhinged. And indeed, just a few days ago, um, in a tweet in which he defended himself, he said at the end of that tweet, impeach the press with a an exclamation mark, suggesting that he was sort of uh, supporting his own impeachment. Um, he seems to do things that are extremely unhinged and extremely um, uh, damaging to his own interests, uh, spouting that he thinks that um, uh, Adam Schiff should be arrested for treason, for example, right. in the um, end of September is not a good way to uh, convince the American public that you are not obstructing justice in your own impeachment inquiry. Uh, so he's he's not acting in his own best interest. And indeed, a question, a very important question, I think, is whether or not the fact that he is so unhinged and really is starting to look like he is not capable of governing, whether or not that will factor into impeachment at all. Uh, under the Constitution, of course, uh, we have to, the House has to find that he uh, engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors, and indeed specifically mentions bribery as one such example, uh, which fits the Ukraine situation very well. But what do you do about people who might be inclined to impeach him because he's just become incompetent mm. and cannot function and doesn't seem mentally all there, and they don't want uh, an individual like that to have his finger on the nuclear trigger. And, and um, over and above whether you agree with the politics or not, just the lack of judgment that comes up and the lack of depth when making statements or even in regard to the G7 at his country club. I, I mean, again, it right. just seems even the average person who doesn't know anything about politics is going to shake their head and say, well, that can't be right. Right. And so the question is whether or not mental incompetence or lack of judgment or lack of morals and balance does that figure into impeachment at all? Yeah. <clears throat> Our constitutional standard doesn't suggest that it would, but a lot of people may feel that that's really the very best reason that he should no longer be president. And how does that figure into our process in any way? Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Claire, thank you so much for the time. Always a pleasure. Uh, it's going to be fascinating over the next few weeks. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.